Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Burns. How you doing? I'm doing fine. We just had a blizzard. It, it <laughs> ended and we can begin to leave our home. Oh, well, you know what? I'm, I'm we go outside. We have COVID-19. So then we'll return to our home. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I'm hunkered down and we're glad you're hunkered down with us. This is the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. And we're really excited today because we're going to continue our conversation about marketing. And we've been talking to some amazing leaders in the field. And we've got Joel Silverman, who is co-founder and CEO of Kids Know Best. And rather than me giving a summary of it, Joel, why don't you uh, jump in, tell us a little bit about you, how you got here and what your company does. I'll tell you a bit about the company. So today we are one of the leaders in the space in understanding and engaging with most of your listeners' audience. So that's that's kids. And it, and it says it in the title of the business. You know, we've come on a, on a crazy journey since Rob, my co-founder, and I started the company. Rewinding just over four years ago, I was in um, a full-time career of hairdressing. In that, worked in, in Mayfair in London, built a very successful career, but always had, had ideas that I wanted to do something else. You know, I had that entrepreneurial spirit in me. And then Rob approached me one day, knowing what I'm like, um, knowing that I'll always back a crazy idea. And he rung me up and says, I've got this great idea. What do you think? And the idea initially was about what it always is, giving kids a voice. He felt that why should a 40-year-old man be telling us what they think of something made for a child? Now, he's got twin girls. They were four at the time. And he took them to the cinema to see an animation film that got absolutely caned in the press. And his kids loved the film. And he said that he knew they loved it because, you know, anytime an exciting piece of piece of the film come on, they were gripped. They, they stood up, grabbed the seats, and they were just absolutely engaged with this film. Rob still thinks the film was awful, but what does he know? So his idea was thinking, well, why am I reading a review that's giving this two stars if my four-year-old daughters, who they are the target audience, are absolutely gripped? And there's a reason why the film's not doing well is because someone's telling us that you shouldn't take your kids to see this, even though there was nothing wrong with the film. So he started looking into, was there anything out there that lets kids voice their opinions? He was like, maybe we can make a platform that is video-led of kids talking about movies. And then from movies, we could talk about toys. We could talk about publishing. We can talk about fashion. Anything a child will be interested in, let's get their opinion. So I was like, yeah, I love it. It was like, we call it Kids Know Best. Neither of us had any, any knowledge of the kids sector, any knowledge of the media sector, any knowledge of digital, but we thought we'd give it a go. Fast forward a few months and we spent nights building out a business plan of how this theoretically at the time a publishing model would look and how we would generate revenue from our own platform. We can look at ourselves and build a trip advisor for kids and it's all about engaging with children, letting them have a voice. So I started talking to all my clients basically and was saying, I've got this idea, I'm going to launch a new business. One of my clients, she said, I love kids. I love this idea. 
write me a business plan and if it's any good, I'll invest. So Rob and I, again, not knowing what a business plan was, decided to write a business plan. Um, we look back here now and laugh, but you know we've kind of got to where we have because of that. And we managed to raise £150,000 investment from, at the time, the president of the Marriott Group. So it was an amazing stamp of approval for us. And we were like, oh, shit, we've actually got to work on this now. It's fair to say the publishing model didn't work. Um, and that's not a bad thing because we learned a hell of a lot. So we ended up renting a studio space and we started inviting kids down. And then we were purchasing toys from various brands and getting kids to talk about these toys and then putting these videos on our platform and on YouTube. And we started reaching out to PR companies. We started reaching out to toy companies, whoever would listen to us saying, do you want to pay us to make some content for you? Eventually they did. And we started charging to make videos of kids talking about toys and what happened was we were like, oh, wow, brands actually need this and brands are not placing their content correctly on digital. We also realized, well, hold on a second. We're getting brands send us toys before they even get released to get their opinions, to make a piece of content that could be shown anywhere, either to, to buyers, you know, it could be shown at toy fairs and then eventually could be used as marketing assets. But some of the products they were sending us were very early stage. So the kids were going, no, nah, this is rubbish. I don't like this toy. So again, not having a background in how to create great content, we were just going to them, look, we've made this video for you, but the kids actually said that your toy is rubbish. Um, <laughs> what do you want to do about this? And they were like, well, we can't publish that anywhere because we still need to sell the toy. So we thought, ah, there's another business here. We're a research company now. So we decided that we were going to sell research to these brands too. And it was going to be real-time research of kids talking about their toys. When we finally got Pete on board and fast-forwarding slightly, um, we saw this gap in the digital marketing space. So we thought, okay, let's go B2B. Let's approach the brands and say, look, have you thought about how you make creative on digital and not what's going on TV? So we were approaching these brands who traditionally were placing their ad spend on your broadcasters. And we were saying, think about it differently. Think about where children are consuming content and can we place media where they're watching it? And it's taken a long time to get these toy codes to realize that digital is here to stay and that's where kids are consuming content. And we, we backed ourselves and we were like, right, let's keep creating content Let's keep doing these things of where kids are. We'll make assets that sit right there. Eventually, people will come around to the idea that this is this is the way forward. And if we've built a great creative, because we understand them, because we've got all this this data, this you know, this deep, rich proprietary data that we've got a concept called YTS, which is us obviously now in COVID times speaking to kids on Zoom all around the world and just speaking to them about everyday life, understanding their likes, their dislikes, the platforms they're on, the brands they're into, and all that data will help us create better content for the clients we work for. 
I'm curious about your talking to kids around the world. Basically, that we'll source panels globally. So we've got our own panel in the UK, but we partner with, with panels around the world. We just literally have a candid chat for 10 minutes and speaking to children for 10, 15 minutes, the amount of insight that you get is just amazing. So tell me some of the things that you're learning here in 2021 that may be different from what it was a few years ago. What are you noticing about kids in COVID that may be different from kids prior to COVID? I mean, if you're talking about kids in COVID now, I'd definitely say, which I'm sure has come up quite a lot, is the amount of time that they've spent on iPads in front of screens and how that's affecting them as well as it is, you know, parents. Because you, you see in the news a lot about parents are struggling and people are struggling. They've got a homeschool. They've got a, you know, they've got to juggle, juggle their careers and things like this. The kids are struggling. They're not with their, with their friends. They're sat in front of a screen, but they're still learning. You know, they're doing the best they can. And, and that's, in, that's important. They, they have to be there and to be compassionate about what their parents are going through as well as them. And I think they understand that, that they're getting to a point where they know that they can learn and they can do the best because their parents are doing their best. Describe a, a typical client. At the moment, we, we'd say we work with all IP owners and all consumer product owners. So whether it would be a Warner Brothers or a Universal that owns the property, or it would be their consumer products partners like a Hasbro, a Mattel, etc. So let's say, I, suppose I'm, I've got a property called Hoppin' Rabbits. And uh, I come to you and I say, I got a hopping rabbits. I think it's going to be hot. It involves rabbits and they hop. Uh, What would you do for me? First of all, I'd ask you, how do you know hopping rabbits is going to be hot? This is where a lot of the brand should start with. Anytime you're trying to build an IP, it should be about talking to the audience first before it's even got out there. You know, there's no point in spending millions of pounds of production if something that you're producing isn't something the consumer wants to see. So first of all, we would say, look, speak to our research team. We will then look at what data and information we have already on who you deem to be the target audience, what your competitor analysis is, where you're going to be placing this media. And then from there, we'll do a little bit of qual um, research where we will be speaking to kids and trying to understand if this IP that you think is going to be hopping amazing, wherever it is, it's going to work. Because before us coming up with a creative marketing strategy for you, we don't want to see you fail. We want to make sure that this is going to be the best campaign possible and it's going to hit the right eyeballs and kids are going to want to enjoy it. And that's that's the most important thing. Do you get into qualitative issues? Let's say you think having rabbits... It's terrible. I mean, forgetting the audience for a minute, you just think the quality of what I'm showing you is just terrible. To be honest, I would always say it's all about audience response because, as I said, we started the business because, you know, Rob's kids like something that was traditionally says isn't going to work. So for me, I'm going to have an opinion that I'm not going to like it. Why does my opinion matter? You know, I'm not the target audience here. You know, luckily, as I said, we've got a great team that will – they might have seen 10 hopping rabbits before and say, look, we've done a lot of research and insights into this particular piece of content that we know is not going to work. So 
don't waste your money. We want to be honest. We want to be partners to, to everyone we work with. But I would never have an opinion because my opinion is irrelevant. So what happens if your research then says that Hopping Rabbits is, is really, uh, it, it's really got a lot going for it? So what then would you do? Well, obviously, depending on budgets that the owner of Hopping Rabbits has, you know, once the researchers come back and let you say it's going to be the next Paw Patrol, what is your strategy to get this in front of the masses? How are you going to get a global reach of Hopping Rabbits? We would then love to work with you on that creative strategy and we would fit in and say, right, what is your marketing strategy here? How are you going to reach those eyeballs? Where are you going to be putting your ad spend? Where are you going to be putting your media budgets? And that's kind of where we've come in. We we like to be with, with brands on the full journey, right from creation all the way through to buying the paid media on digital to say, driving this traffic over here and, and, and converting. You also do work with content creators. One of the things I'm curious about, because this is a big topic right now, is matching the content creator with the product or the or the IP. I see some yep. terrible mismatches. I see some things that ultimately make me cringe, even as somebody who studies kids for a living. What's your process for matching up the, the content creators with the products? And I'm glad you say that, Chris, because I agree. In the kind of murky world as such of influencers and creators, there's somewhat a poor match between what the brand product is to who the creator they choose. Now, anytime we work with a, with a brand, we're always asking them, what are your end goals for this? Is it to raise awareness? Is it to drive sales? And who are your target audience? Because a lot of the products that we help brands sell would be targeting parents. So we will make sure that the creators that we work with will have a fantastic engaged audience that will like and resonate with that brand. So before we even do anything, it's all about the data. It's all about engagement rates. It's all about who their audience are. It's all about demographic profiling. We want to make sure that whomever we work with we are effective in our results and we're also very creative. One of my big questions is, is how do you know it works? Because I talk to a lot of companies and sometimes the metrics that they've chosen for success don't necessarily feed the bottom line, which is really what you've got to do. How do you counsel people to create programs that are actually going to move the needle on sales? And how do you know if you've done it? We say this to every single marketing and brand owner because we do want to be that company that moves the needle. And we will, as I said, we look at the engagement rates. Um, let's just say we're doing something on TikTok. We'll use a bit.ly link and we'll track the conversions. We'll always track conversions and we always try and push through to a place of sale. So, you know, if we're selling Hoppity Bunnies, you know, their new consumer product, we're going to say, where are you stocking them? Oh, we've got our own direct consumer site. Great. We can then track that conversion. And then either we could put a pixel in your site to track it completely from our end, or we could be going, Richard, can you tell us your sales data for you know the two weeks that we run this campaign? And we would like to think that nine times out of 10, when we run the campaign, it's converted through to sales. And again, these are the metrics we like because 
you know, there's no point in people spending money with us if we can't help you reach your goals. Because ultimately, your goal as a toy co is to sell toys and to build fandom. I'm really intrigued by how you guys go into the children's perception of things rather than the adult perception. Because I do think that that's a big problem in some toy companies. What a 30-year-old designer thinks is great and cool Mm -hmm. leaves a five-year-old cold. But then you get things like Dinosaur Train, which to an adult mind makes no sense. But to a child, they love trains and they love dinosaurs. So Let's put them together, and that's even more fun. How do you structure your research so that the children really are free to, and you as adults are able to perceive how the kids are perceiving this? Because we have very different brains from a physical and cognitive standpoint. Of course we do. When you're chatting to kids and, and researching with children, you have to have someone that has the experience to know what they say is actually what they mean, and what they don't say is what they mean. So... And it's the same with adults as it is for kids. We will speak to kids and ask, uh, sorry, we will speak to parents and say, does your child ever click through an ad on an app and download a game? I can guarantee you, and we've got the data to prove this, parents will say, no, they don't. If you observe the parents and the child, you'll see a child, rightly or wrongly, whether they want to play that game or not or download that, they'll just click the button and download anyway. So... What people say and what people actually do are two different things. So it's all about how you observe them. One of the methods that the team have been using recently, again, because of because of COVID, has been asking families to keep diaries. So we get parents to keep diaries of what kids are engaging with and behaviour and things like that. And then they send us the diaries. And then from there, we can actually pick that out and look at the, the data and understanding of various children. That for us is valuable, valuable insight. I think another phenomenon that probably really feeds into what you're doing is uh, children today have so much more agency uh, than the children did 20 years ago. And they have enormous power over choices that parents make, anything from cars uh, to vacations. So do you, it just sounds to me like um, you're, you have really tapped into uh, uh, a very modern phenomenon, which is the power of, of children to make really their their own choices, uh, unlike any time in history. Yeah, I, I, and you know, and we can't get away from the fact that it's it's a great age we're living in that we are giving people more choice. There's an interesting thing to think about, and it's you know, is there too much choice, or has there always been a lot of choice, but now you're just seeing it more because the platform becomes wider. There's a lot more access now. That's really important. The the barrier of entry now is so much less than it was before. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the quality's improved. It just means the way that you get there is cheaper. As we talk, one of the things that that occurs to me is with children uh, having so much agency now and making choices, et cetera, um, our children, have they become more sophisticated uh, than they were? And you may not know the answer to this, but then, but then 20 years ago or 30 years ago, uh, because children have more power, has their ability to, to gauge you know, quality, whatever quality is for them, has that, has that gotten more sophisticated? I'd say yes and no. As I mentioned earlier, like I think... Quality is in the eye of the beholder. You know, you, 
you know, how can you define quality yourself? Everyone's going to have different tastes on what quality is. And there's different ranges. You know, a piece of quality content for us might not necessarily be a piece of quality content for your neighbor. So I think with what children are engaging with now, they're probably learning a lot more quickly, but they're also more sheltered than ever before because they're sat on a screen. I don't necessarily think children of this generation are any better or any worse than the last generation. They're just learning things differently, consuming content in a different way and, you know, interacting differently. It doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just different. That brings up a cultural question for me, something that I've been sort of fascinated about, because today family dynamics are very different from when I was growing up. I, my brothers and I consider ourselves the product of benign neglect, which is my parents weren't that engaged in our personal lives or, our, you know, get out of the house and go play. And as long as we weren't bloody or on fire, everything seemed to be okay. Parents are much more engaged in their children's lives. What do you see as the current family dynamics in, in that regard? Going back to, to what we just discussed about where people consume content, you're seeing a lot more co-viewing now than ever before. Previously, there was children's channels. There was adult channels. Now you've got Netflix and you've got Disney Plus and you've got Amazon Prime. These are creating content that can be co-viewing and consumed together. This is where families are spending family time. And what you'll often see is parents sitting down to co-view something and a child sitting there with an iPad or a Kindle or, you know, whatever they do have. There's multiple devices around the home. So people, I guess families are spending more time together. But again, go back to what I said, doesn't make it right or wrong. Doesn't mean the quality is even more or less because I was the same as a child. I was always out playing football over the park, doing different things. But my time with my family might be, we'd all sit around eating dinner together and spend an hour or so quality time. Kids and parents will spend more time together now, but it doesn't necessarily mean the quality has changed because like I said, you've got co-viewing, you've got multiple devices. So, it, you know, it's a gray area for me. As kids, both Richard and I realized that we were very <laughs> impressionable and gullible about, about sales. Do you find that yep. today's kids who have been inundated with advertising messages since they popped out, do you find that they're more sophisticated at knowing when they're being marketed to and Definitely. look for authenticity? 100%. This goes back to when you were talking about creators on social. You know, you have to be authentic and you have to cut through noise. Kids know what an ad is. I guarantee you, and I always find it surprising why no one has ever sponsored that timer on YouTube, the countdown to skip an ad. If I'm Rolex, I'm sponsoring that tomorrow because that has got to be the most watched piece of content on YouTube is that timer. Like, I find it amazing, but kids... Kids definitely know what an advert is, and that's why it's important to create something that is engaging and is amazing, because if you want to get their attention, do something they're going to love. You guys create a lot of content. Any tips for people on content that really works? There's no point in creating anything if you don't understand who you're creating it for, because we've grown our company through learning what has worked, what hasn't worked, and the reasons why. When we first started creating content, we used to pass those assets back to the brand. The brand would use their media buyer to place that content. 
And if that content didn't get the cut through that it deserved, who gets the blame? The creative. Well, for me, it's more about understanding your audience. So if you're making the perfect creative, then you should know the perfect audience that are going to watch that creative. It's very important for us. And I think for the whole of the industry we're in to understand not only why you're doing it, but where it's going, because you, you don't want to waste your money. As you said, you need to move the needle. You need to be doing it correctly. And you need to make sure that those eyeballs that everybody's chasing, every Toyco wants, every media house wants, are the right eyeballs. You said you do other countries besides the UK. Yep. Can you name some of the other countries you're doing? Yeah, we, we work in the US. So we've done some fantastic campaigns in the US. We work in Germany. We work in France. We work in Sweden. We're in the midst at the moment of growing our team in the US. So at the moment, um, everything's serviced out of the UK. And do you see any cultural differences in children's really? responses? Of course, there's cultural differences. And, and, and that's why it's important for me to understand more about every country and every community that we speak with. But saying that, it doesn't mean that you can't create a fantastic asset from one country that won't resonate in another. We've seen a tremendous transformation in both how content's delivered and how content is consumed in the past several years. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on why this move to digital and OTT has been so profound. I think it's a number of reasons. I, I believe that what happened is things get bundled and unbundled, and, and that normally happens when people are happy and unhappy. You see it with politics, you see it with everything. People were paying, you know, again, being in the UK, I know how much I pay for my Sky subscription, and I know you guys in the US were paying a fortune for cable. And, you know, I think it enabled Netflix to try and break that model. And once they broke that model, they realized they had an audience there. They had their early adopters. And suddenly, once that starts snowballing and people are going, this is a cheap and good way of seeing content, that starts developing. And the traditional media just think, oh, it's fine. They're a little startup. And they don't see the shift. Now we've fast forwarded, you know, to a stage where, you're seeing everything has been unbundled. As I mentioned, Disney Plus, things like that. Everyone is fighting for the same audience in different places. And there's so many more ways of interacting with that consumer. Amazon Prime, they're a massive example of this. They know that they will lock you in because of Prime on demand. And everyone's going to subscribe to their content because they already subscribe to their delivery service. Suddenly people that used to walk to the shops to go and buy something are now going, I want everything instant. I've got on-demand delivery, I've got on-demand content. I want to see a series drop now. Everything is instant. Digital is instant. OTT is instant. It's going to come a stage where it gets broken again and people are going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I've got 20 OTTs. I've got a load of noise on digital that I can't find anything. Can't we just bundle this back up and go, here's one subscription service, here's one place of, of seeing content and tell me what I need to see. You know, it, the world's going to change dramatically in the next five years, just as it has the last five years. All right, Joel, we're going to ask you the question we ask everybody here on the Playground Podcast. 
Buckle up and tell us a secret. <laughs> I don't know if it's much of a secret. Um, it's more something that I believe should always be done. And it's take a chance, keep knocking on the doors and just talk to everyone because you never know where that's going to lead. As I said, our company in its infancy, we didn't know what we were or what we were going to achieve, especially now. Our first client I met on the, on the London Underground, I was on the way to my previous career. And I don't know if you've ever been on London Underground, but no one speaks. It's hot. <laughs> People are packed like sardines. No one wants to talk. And I'm sat there and there was this, this lady and she was, she had these A3 sheets of paper and on them was some, some sketches and some, some storyboards of some kids animation. So I'm just looking over my shoulder and thinking, of course, she must be in our industry. Well, I say, I say our industry now, then I was still a hairdresser. So I just thought she must be in the kids space. And I thought, as I said, we're in London. No one talks. I thought I'll wait. I was like, please put your papers away before you get off the tube. Luckily, she did. She put them away, and I was sweating. It was August, and I went, I'm really sorry to be rude and looking over your shoulder. I was like, what do you do? And she was like, oh, I'm the head of illustrations of Penguin Random House. Wow. I was like, wow. And I basically gave her my kids know best elevator pitch, gave her a business card, didn't think nothing of it, that evening, she dropped me an email and introduced me to their marketing director. And we had a meeting with them and sold them the dream and, and they become our first client. So that's my secret. Or, you know, always, always talk to people and always take a chance. Joel, why don't you tell folks how they can reach you and how they can learn more? You can reach me uh, via email. I, I'm always, always open and will always reply. It's joel at kidsknowbest.com. .co.uk, or you can just have a look at our website, which is www.kidsknowbest.co.uk. Well, Joel Silverman, this has been really engaging and entertaining. What a pleasure to spend the time with you and to meet you. And we're very excited about what you're doing and can't wait to see what you're doing next. Thank you for spending the time with us today. Thank you both. Thank you for having me. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. Are you a creator or inventor looking to place your toy concept? Zuru welcomes concept submissions for review and potential licensing. Zuru's exceptional manufacturing, distribution, design, marketing, and operations, and their team of world-class toy professionals have made the company an industry powerhouse on a global scale. Start a conversation about creating a partnership that can turn your brainstorms into brands. Email inventors at Zuru.com and put from the Playground Podcast in the subject line. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about different issues confronting the toy industry. And we're talking a little bit about channels and channel retailing. And Richard, you wrote an article recently about a channel that might be unfortunately overlooked, but that has a lot of opportunity. And you're saying we should be thinking about convenience stores. Yeah, I, I saw an article <laughs> and it said that there are currently 150,274 convenience stores in the United States. And those convenience stores sell 80% of all the gasoline sold in the U.S., now, I grant you a lot of people pay at the pump, but an awful lot of people go into a convenience store to make a purchase. 
there are some toys in those stores. There are some, I've seen even some collectibles. Uh, and it seems to me in an age in which so much retail has moved online, and is a, which is a detriment to the sales of impulse items, that here are uh, 150,000 plus stores that have some counter space and are a great place for blind bags and, and other kind of collectible toys and other kind of toys that are that are low cost. I think it's a real opportunity. I think so too. I remember when I was a kid, we would buy things at 7-Eleven like caps and bubble fluid and things like that that was on the lower level of the of the candy shelves. So there's a lot of retail space available there. The collectibles are really high margin. They are impulse sales. They are great if you're out with the kids and you can you can pick them up. And it's an opportunity to get in front of people. But one of the things, of course, Richard, that would concern me is how do you get the stuff into these retail outlets? I know that there are buying groups that service all the airport stores. Are there similar situations here or how would people get their stuff on the shelves? Yeah, there are distributors that service many of these convenience store chains. Uh, many years ago, when I was a, a young fellow in the toy industry, <laughs> and I worked uh, for um, Western Publishing Company, which was, uh, we sold a lot of color books and games, et cetera. And just one of the regional 7-Elevens was a, a customer of mine, and they just did an automatic distribution to all their stores. I think it was once a week with 12 new color books. It was a lot of business. So I think there's several ways to go to the market. One of the challenges always in expanding channel representation is distribution. So how would somebody go about getting their stuff placed in the stores? I think you've got an answer for that. It's a very uh, distributor-driven uh, business. Uh, un unlike the rest of kind of American retail, the convenience stores still do rely on distributors. So uh, as an example, the biggest one that I'm aware of is the McLean Company, M-C-L-A-N-E. Uh, they're in Temple, Texas. I think they do a lot of work with 7-Eleven. Cormark, C-O-R-E-M-A-R-K in San Francisco. E.B. Brown, E-B-Y-Brown in Naperville, Illinois. And let me just give you two more. H.T. Hackney Company in Knoxville and GSC Enterprises in Sulphur Springs, Texas. So that's where you, I think you start your journey. There are convenience store shows and that sort of thing. So I would just think it'd be worth people checking out the opportunity in the convenience store market. I think so as well. And I think it is a channel that has lots of traffic and lots of impulse sales. I certainly wouldn't have beef jerky were it not for the convenience stores. So, <laughs> and it is for a lot of parents an alternative to a sugary or salty treat. At the same time, if you're on the road, it's something you can give your kids to get them to calm down and have a new toy. I think in today's market, that point of sale visibility is really important. And as we move more and more to online purchasing, that's harder and harder to have happen. So I think finding a way to be a small presence in a large chain of convenience stores might really be both a marketing and a sales opportunity. And Chris, I would just add to that. I, I don't think it cannibalizes any other sale because it is impulse driven. So I think it's really plus business.
Absolutely. And we're glad you stopped by to listen to us at your convenience. This is the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Bird with Richard Gottlieb. And we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy and Marketing and Media Agency, Chiscom. And we will see you next time.